Welcome to the Francisca Show podcast, a part of JewishCoffeehouse.com. The show on where I give a voice to Jewish issues, topics, and people. I'm Francisca, your host. Welcome back to the show, friends, Dan's. It has been a difficult couple of weeks, let's just say that. Yes, last week's episode was removed just a few days after it was put up, and I actually replaced the audio with a short explanation of why I did honor the request of our guest for it to be taken down. Just before we get started, I'd like to share a message I got last week. So, quote, I grew up in an extreme group where even Satmer wasn't firm enough. Many things that I experienced when I was younger was seriously messed up. It always bothered me that the more modern, open, from society ignored the mess in their own backyard. It feels that finally the more moderate community is waking up and is realizing that allowing extremism to fester is dangerous and they're finally speaking out. Pressure from people like you is imperative for any hope for change. End quote. Messages like these keep me going, and today we will release our final episode of this series to wrap up the saga of Chaim Walder, but really to make a statement that we're not just covering this as news coverage, but we're actually using this as a moment in our community to implement change, which is why the episode today is all about prevention and education and awareness. How can we as adults, as individuals, be proactive about going forward? And I hope you enjoy this episode. If you are thinking of launching a podcast or you know anyone else thinking or should be thinking about launching a podcast, please make an introduction, send them my way, let me help them with my podcast launch VIP services. And without any further ado, enjoy the show. Welcome back to the Francisca Show, France Dance. Today, we have once again on our show, Dvora Enten, LCSW, therapist, program director, Rebitson. Would you say Rebitson? Sometimes. Program coordinator, consultant for family and children's services. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me back. It is so great to have you. For anyone who is curious, you can go back and listen to Women Mental Health Postpartum with Vora Enten from a couple of years back. Really great episode. But today our episode is inspired to talk about education, awareness, the proactive stuff that can be done as the adults in the Jewish community post Chaim Walder world, even though you have been running this program in our school for the last eight years. And last night I attended your presentation for several schools in our community, which was absolutely excellent. So thank you so much for doing this. Pleasure. Since we don't have an hour and a half for you to do the entire presentation here, and that's not entirely the point of this episode, I would like to first ask you how you got started with this cause, with this initiative. I know you're a therapist, but you specialize in infertility, women's mental health, postpartum, maternal help. So tell us how you got into the sex ed or abuse prevention for children, Jewish children. It's an interesting question. And I don't even necessarily have like a formulated, like, oh, it was because of this moment in time. 
I think that what I knew this, I knew of this program because when we lived in Phoenix, Arizona, we had brought the program to Phoenix. The program actually just in a very small world kind of way is, was developed by Debbie Fox of McGainy Lesbian International. And she actually grew up in Arizona and her father was the head of school where my husband was the principal. So we were very familiar on a, like almost like on a very direct and intimate way with the program. And we saw the program in the Phoenix Hebrew Academy, attended her workshop on parenting, um, talking to parents, talking to teachers, saw the program presented to the students. And it was so crucial. To me, this was such a crucial conversation. And when we moved from Phoenix to, to Philadelphia, my, it, it wasn't even a question. It was like, how are we going to make this happen? This is too important not to happen. And we, we launched with a, you know, this was with the full support of Jewish Family and Children's Service. At the time, I was working for them. And we started with an event about, you know, can we talk about sexual abuse? And it was interesting because initially there was some pretty heavy pushback because we actually used the word sexual in the presentation and in the publicity. People were like, how are we even putting the word sexual up on our bulletin boards in the shoals? Like how inappropriate. And, you know, we, I learned how you, I had learned and continue to learn how to navigate some of the political, emotional, religious, spiritual experiences of bringing really important topics to light. And how do you do that on a communal level in a way that is really culturally sensitive and nuanced to the community in which you are currently living. And as a follow-up to that program, we got a grant from the Kohelet Foundation to bring this program to all of the Jewish day schools. But prior to even getting the grant, it was a matter of talking to all the schools and saying, this is the program that we want. Are you on board? And then thankfully did get the program funded with the collaboration of the schools and financial input from the schools. And what was phenomenal was that every single one of our local Jewish institutions, our, our pluralistic and communal and orthodox day schools were completely invested in this idea. And I think that says a lot about Philly. I think it says a lot about our community and that to be in that position of strength that this was from a proactive prevention standpoint to me is a very empowered space to be. And so while it doesn't directly, you know, straight line correlate to the maternal health world, I initially before becoming specialized in maternal health, always was seeking to say like, what more could we talk about on a communal level? So a lot of the workshops and things that I did prior to exclusively maternal health related to all different interesting topics that I just said, let's talk about them and let's find the experts. and Let's talk about these important things and bring more light into some of these topics that are difficult to address on communal levels and on, on individual and personal levels. So that's kind of the long answer to the short question. That's great. So if we had to break down the fundamental areas or the points of this training and this curriculum, what would it be? I'll regal achas. I'll regal achas. Okay. I'm going to say that the first kind of foundational piece of education around sexual abuse prevention is that we prevent circumstances from happening in a few ways. One, by supervision. Number two is by creating open and honest communication with our children. Those are the two highlighted points. Sexual abuse happens in private. Sexual abuse happens behind closed doors. Sexual abuse happens when it's outside of the view of the parental body or of the, or the person who's in charge of keeping that child safe. So supervision prevents sexual abuse. I can really have a hard time thinking of circumstances other than something like the Larry Nasser case, which I don't think we need to go into, but other than a circumstance like that, there, which is incredibly rare, that supervision will prevent sexual abuse from happening, okay, in general. Then we have 
if there is a circumstance that makes a child confused, that makes a child uncomfortable, that makes a child go, I don't know what's happening here. Does the communication that exists between parent and child exist at a level that a child knows I can go to my parent to talk this through? And my parent will help me without shaming me, without embarrassing me, without making me feel embarrassed, without making me feel guilty, without saying, how could you have done such a terrible thing? And that they also will believe me. And so that is the concept that I want to address is supervision and communication styles. So the supervision aspect, I know I'm a mother of little kids. I need to take the help whenever I can get it. And hearing you talk about last night, during Shabbos meals or Yendif meals, somebody has to go and check on the kids. Right now, I don't have a basement where they could just go. So they are in our faces all the time. But it just, it, it's so exhausting to think. I mean, it's always on our heads, in our minds to check on them. It's a lot to have all that responsibility 24-7. If you think about it, you have that responsibility anyway right? Every day you have a carbon monoxide protect, uh, carbon monoxide uh, detector in your house. You have a smoke detector in your house. You have knobs that cover your stove. You talk about putting on seatbelts and you make sure they're well belted in the car. It's, it's a huge responsibility as parents to take care of our children. Now, I also am going to acknowledge that there are circumstances where a parent cannot exc- all the time be present and make sure that their child is safe hundred percent of the time. I leave my child with a babysitter. I leave my child with a nanny. I leave my child with my older sibling or younger sibling. I leave my child with the 15-year-old babysitter that I hired that I love, right? So how do I differentiate between I have to be with my child all the time versus I have to create circumstances that are safe for my child most of the time? And then what happens after I leave my child with respite? So I take a moment. I, I leave my child with a babysitter, a nanny. Am I checking in on my with my child later to see how that when am I asking my child, so anything you want to talk about and what did you guys play? And do they have any different kind of rules in their family than we have in our family? And yes, it's a lot easier to do when your children are verbal. And yes, there's a certain amount of faith that we put into leaving our kids with nannies and babysitters if we don't use, you know, video monitoring. But there's some technical ways for me to check in on the safety of my child. And then there's also just, there's also just that sense of like, I have to have faith that I have done the best I can. And that ultimately, if I have an open and honest relationship communicatively with my child, especially that in the event that something happens that my child can come to me and will have the safe space to have that conversation with me so that it won't happen again. Right. And the communication piece that you mentioned, obviously, when kids come and you catch them eating all the chocolate or whatever else they did that maybe got them in trouble, they're not getting the whole don't worry, it's okay. They'll usually get a little bit pushback. So how can you communicate to your kids that there are certain things that no matter, you know, how stupid you are, I'm not going to yell at you about this. Well, I think that part of that is understanding the nature of abuse. So, and the nature of victimization. So explaining to a child, it is never your fault. If somebody touches you in a in, on your private parts, if somebody tries to play game with you with your private parts, if somebody shows you naked pictures, and you come and tell me about those things, I promise I'm going to help figure it out with you, and you will not be in trouble. And what age is it okay to say that to a kid? Very young. Giving those examples, like, aren't we giving these ideas to them? So we're not about. It's not a matter of giving ideas. You're right. Am I turning to my three year old and saying, if anybody touches your private parts, you should come and tell me. I'm not going to get you in trouble. Maybe the language is a slightly different, but I am telling my three-year-old 
nobody's allowed to touch your private parts, right? Your private parts are private. Your body belongs to you. And nobody's allowed to touch your private parts. Nobody's allowed to play with your private parts. If you want to play with your private parts, you can go do that in your room. But nobody else is allowed to touch your private parts. And if somebody asks you to touch their private parts, like a babysitter or anybody, we don't do that. That's not safe. And you need to tell mommy right away because that's not safe, right? It would be the same kind of conversation of like, and if you see your brother trying to run across the street, you must come run and tell me right away because he's doing something that's not safe. But we're not talking about bad behavior or good behavior. We're talking about unsafe behavior. And I think, therefore, the languaging is slightly different. But if you start it young and you start it like kind of more casually, then it doesn't feel like this big, gigantic conversation that I have to have. And I think that's where things, people get confused. Like, oh, my gosh, I have to have the talk about sexual abuse. No, you don't. You have to just bring up certain components of this conversation as time progresses, as your child's mind develops, as your children have more flexibility and go on play dates. Those are the kinds of times that we have to have conversations that aren't necessarily these big statements, but just like little dropping of nuggets of information and conversations so that a child understands we talk about private parts. Mommy and daddy and I have conversations about safety. And we, I know that because mommy taught me, nobody's allowed to touch my private parts. I noticed I used the word safety and I like it very much. And you mentioned it in the context also of not referring to being unsneous, but it being unsafe. Can you address that? I found that to be very, very mind opening. I think that we, because I think that what happens is that in the mind of a child that is a victim, it was something that was unsneous and therefore I did something shameful or something was It was so unsneeze. How can I tell my mother or my father about this bad thing that happened to me? Because I'm so embarrassed because it was so unsneeze, right? But if I say this was, there's a safety violation here. Somebody has to help me because the circumstance was unsafe. It's a little bit easier to disclose. But even if if you pick it up prior to there being an incident, we're not talking about sneeze. This does not have to do with, this has nothing to do with sneeze. This is modesty. This has everything to do with the safety of one's body, if somebody is assaulted, raped, there is an in, or, or molested, there is an injury that is happening here. This is not just a spiritual injury. This is a physical injury that is going to physical and emotional injury that's occurring, right? So we're not talking about this from a spiritual realm. We're talking about this from a, a physical and emotional injury and mental health injury that occurs. And we know that in the long run, the implications are not just spiritual. The implications are so grounded in research that I can tell you the implications of somebody having the trauma of sexual abuse in childhood and not getting the help that they deserve or not being believed or not coming forward and disclosing and things going on over time. We're looking at PTSD symptoms. We're looking at massive dysfunction in marriages. We're looking at their sexual relationship in marriage being very distorted. We look at their parenting behaviors as very complicated, their relational and trust issues that exist. And that's not SNEAS related, right? That's safety and injury related. You want to put it in those kind of terms. Do we have any data on children who were abused, but reported right away and were believed right away and went to therapy right away? What the difference their lives are compared to the secrecy and the years of keeping it inside of them. You just described the data. Those people that come forward and are believed and get help and it doesn't happen again in an ongoing way, it doesn't have to be a big T trauma. Those that hide it and absorb it and it's a secret and it goes on for months and years, it becomes very much a big T trauma. And so 
well, I can't quote you the direct studies, the studies exist. And that is absolutely what the data shows, that the number one indicator of whether this becomes a trauma in a child's life is going to be whether they disclosed it and they were believed and they were helped and they were supported and versus those that either didn't report or those that reported and nobody believed them. Huge difference in outcome. And that makes sense. Do we have data on children who have experienced this curriculum if they are abused any less than kids who had no exposure? We don't, unfortunately. There was some studies that were done in terms of like education and retention, how children first kind of absorb this information longer. We are tracking data of do children, can children apply the information that they learned? You know, these kind of studies in our Orthodox communities are very, very complicated because most of us will not disclose. And it's very practical, right? If I tell you that I am a survivor of sexual abuse, will you marry my child? Right? It comes down to shidduchim. Every single time you could probably, you've probably already done or will do podcasts on the risk of a shidduch, right? So the risk of, if I disclose, what is the kind of, you know, the big red scar that is now marked upon my family? And so most people in our community do not disclose this information. There are some studies in the Orthodox community, very, very few about sexual abuse, but I don't think that it in any way remotely captures the incidence rate or the incestual rate or the reporting rate that would be very valuable. But I will say that if you look at, for example, Amudim sends out a, a, I don't know if it's monthly or every couple of weeks, they'll send out a report and they'll talk about how many calls came in this week, this month, this year, relating to sexual abuse history or sexual abuse trauma. And they are tracking. It's remarkable to see those numbers. And it's frightening to see those numbers. I hope that those numbers will reflect more and more people getting help versus more and more people being injured. And I think the more we talk about prevention, the greater likelihood it is that somebody will say, I'm going to make sure that this never happens again to you or to my child. Yeah. I also loved how you brought in, we can't just bring in the negative talk about sexuality as the only education about sexuality to children. It needs to be accompanied or at least beforehand, it needs to be introduced with the positive sexual education. What is positive sexual education for kids in the firm community? I think I want to differentiate between the younger, younger age children. The question was specifically relating to high school kids. Like, how can we talk? Are we doing this kind of curriculum in high school versus doing it in middle school and and younger? I think that every family has to determine when and what they want to talk to their children about relating to sex ed and and sexual intimacy, which I want to very clearly differentiate between sex ed and, and sexual abuse prevention and education. They are two completely different topics, okay? Because one is hopefully hopefully a discussion of a shared, loving, safe, consensual relationship. And one is the complete opposite of everything I just said, okay? So we, we shouldn't even almost be like confusing the two in conversation. But what we are saying is that one of the complexities of discussing sexual abuse in older children, especially once, is that I have to, I would like to always be able to say, this is what normative sexual behaviors are. And then this is abnormal sexual behaviors, right? These are safe and legal and ethical and halakhic. And these are the opposite of safe and legal and ethical and halakhic. Now, the challenge that we have is that there are many schools that are not doing sex ed. And that is the right and the choice of each of these schools. There are those schools will say, this is not the responsibility of the school. This is the responsibility of the parent. If the parent wants to have that conversation, do it the way that you want to do it. If the parent does not want to have the conversation, 
you are taking the risk of your child finding out on the playground, right? Like I did in third grade, but it's a choice that every parent can have. They'll say, no, my child is incredibly innocent in the Hadarim. They're not learning this. They're not going to find out this information. And that's your right as a parent. And those parents that feel that way very strongly will say, I don't want the school educating my child on sexual intimacy, but they are also willing. They are more and more willing and understanding that safe touch is not the same thing as a discussion of sexual intimacy. If safe touch discussions relates to physical boundaries and safety and our body's health and, and autonomy, two different conversations. I will say when it comes to sex ed, the parents really have to be honest with themselves about what are our children finding out and from whom. And depending on, you may say, no, but I don't have TV and I don't have computer access and I have filters and all that. You are sending them playdates to other people who may have very different rules and access in their family. Every single cell phone is going to access something, even if you have massive filters, et cetera, et cetera. You know, I found out my kid has every filter on the computer. She doesn't even have a browser. And then I realized that Pinterest, okay, the Pinterest app has multiple links to articles and stories and videos, and she is accessing anything that she wants through Pinterest. You know, you and I might think Pinterest is exclusively cutesy little things that they make on and beautiful storyboards of how, what colors I want to paint my house. Actually, Pinterest has much more accessible than I ever imagined. So our kids are going to figure out from whatever technology they may have access to and whatever friends and their technology they will have access to, they're going to find this out anyways. So you need to really consider, do I want my kids finding out through Pinterest or do I want my kids finding out about sexual um, health and sexual intimacy and the relationship that can exist between partners? Can Can I be the ones that teach them that? Or do I really want them finding out from Pinterest? Right. I think it's an important thing to ask oneself. Your kid's going to find out, do you want to control the narrative or do you want it to be taught by an eight, you know, an eight-year-old? By another, exactly, by an Mm eight-year-old. So I, we don't judge on the show, but the schools that are totally not open to this because this is inappropriate and this is not what we do. And that's not what we have been doing. And I know I just introduced you to somebody from a more sheltered environment and school administration to bring this into their school. But can we just classify this as this is irresponsible education and leadership today to not have this? Are we talking about sex ed or are we talking about sexual abuse prevention? Well, either one, but I would say safety before the the privilege of positive sexual education. Okay. So I would say that if we just take it from the sex ed perspective, from an intimacy perspective, that really, that conversation, there is definitely what to consider to say, it's really not shy to my child in fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh grade, right? My child is in a single gender education. My child understands boundaries. We live in a firm lifestyle. They're not having sex. Like I don't really have to have those conversations. Age appropriate. Yep. Their bodies are changing. That's okay. not necessarily sex right? That's puberty and discussion of sexual development. That's different than intimate sexual relationships. Okay. So there is room to say, it's really not shy to my very from child at the age of fifth, sixth, seventh grade. That being said, let's, so I would like to say there's definitely room to say it's not really necessary to teach my child this information until it is relevant to them, which comes back to that idea of either I tell them where I don't, and then ultimately they're going to find out either from their friends or they're going to eventually find out more about it when they're learning for their college classes or they're in Chaya Hamishbacha classes in 12th grade, whatever it is that is the cultural norm of which whatever way you are raising your child. And I think we have to respect 
those kinds of cultural norms. And we have to be mindful that it might be different than what I want and what you want, but that is a cultural norm. And we do need to respect that, even though it's our own culture, right? And we feel like we have the right to say, but it's wrong, but we need to do it differently. However, when it comes to safety, right, I would say that I would like to suggest that there are enough curriculums out there, the one that we do from Magenula Dim International being, to me, my first choice. Many of them have copied that curriculum, but that curriculum offers such a culturally sensitive narrative and photos, even to the point where I have two options of papers to offer the children, that there's one that has a more yeshivish little boy and there's one that has a more modern looking little boy. And if I go into a pluralistic school and I don't feel comfortable with them having uh, little yarmulkes on their head, I even have cards that I can present without yarmulkes and the girls are wearing pants, right? I can't think of something more culturally sensitive than what I use as curriculum to present to the schools. And what we're suggesting is that the conversation around safe touch and safety of our body has nothing to do with sexuality either. Okay, not at kindergarten through fifth, sixth, seventh grade. In high school, we have to be a little bit more mindful. I can't tell a high schooler, nobody's allowed to touch your private parts because they're going to be looking at, look at me and go, oh, seriously, right? Unless I can differentiate between what, except in a committed, loving relationship, marriage, the Kedusha B'Tahara, right? And that's not the conversation we're having. We are talking about safety. So I would say if you're just like, no, 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 then you actually don't know what's out there. Then you don't know what's actually available to you that you might actually go, well, actually, this feels pretty simple. This feels pretty innocuous. This feels pretty like kind of power of, I guess. And I would feel comfortable teaching this in our classrooms. And I think that there's more fear of like, there, there, for those institutions that do not yet have these programs, sometimes it's funding. These programs can be incredibly expensive depending on where and what and et cetera. So it sometimes is a funding issue. And it's also sometimes where there is a little bit of a threat or a fear of unknown. And sometimes it just takes one parent to spearhead a program who can come forward and say, I really believe in this. Let me show it to you. And bringing out the material and saying, I actually think this feels very comfortable that we teach stranger danger. We should also be teaching safety about body autonomy. I would like to mention how this is a three-part program because it involves educating the children as well as school administration and teachers, as well as the parents. It takes a village here. We're not the responsibilities on everyone. Correct. Now I'd like to move to other types of abuse, also unsafe and unhealthy. What if there's no touching involved, but it's still an older person and a younger and a child? You say there is no inappropriate touching, but Sexual abuse doesn't exclusively mean that there was touch, right? So if an abuser says, you little boy, touch you little girl, right? Okay, and mutually pleasure each other or pleasure yourself and I'm going to watch, that's sexual abuse. So yes, he or she never touched the child. That's still sexual abuse. Or an adult or an older person or a bigger child who shows naked pictures to the 10-year-old that he's, he or she is babysitting, you want to see something cool, and shows her the child pornography. That's considered sexual abuse in the court of law. And because it can be like, it's, it's, in a, it's not acceptable. It's not a safe behavior, right? So those are examples where, yes, you can have non-touching sexual abuse. And I think, I think that's what you're asking, right? And, yeah. and obviously all of these things come along with 
manipulation and secrets and threats. Don't tell anybody. This is just between us. I don't want your mother to know. And like, it's something special that just exists between me and you. And like, you're so special to me and you're so lucky that I want to spend time with you. And every one of them can escalate into touching, but there's still that tremendous victimization is happening no matter what, because a child doesn't have a choice here. This is something that's happening and being forced upon the child. So this leads us into the more complicated area, I guess. The first step is making sure your kids come to you if anything happens, right? Or that's the second step. The first step to make sure nothing happens. <laughs> step number three is let's get these people off the street. Most of the time, it does not go to that. That's not even the goal at this point. Right now, it's we're just we're still in survival mode, hearing out the victims helping the survivors become survivors. We're not focused yet so much on outing them, getting them. I I know a lot has been done and Heimwalder clearly is an example of getting somewhere with it. But most of the time, again, Shaduchim is a great example why people won't want to come out. Don't ruin the person's family. It, It probably didn't happen to anyone else. How do we get to the next step? And what do you think is realistic in the firm community? Well, if I had the answer to that question, I, it would, I would make me a lot of money. Like, I, I can't answer the question directly, but I am a big believer of reporting, right? So the to the police, way, to the rabbis, yes, to the schools. Yes, yes, and yes, and yes. I just know um, from all the years I watched SVU is if you're not reporting and you're not providing evidence the day of or the night of, it's your word against their word. Okay, just so, so that's SVU. And now we're going to go into real life cases of sexual assault where or sexual abuse, where there is room for forensic investigation and they are being found credible, not 100 percent of the time. But we are absolutely seeing convictions being done. Look at somebody like uh, Rami Sippel, like Rabbi Sippel from Salt Lake City, Utah, who would be a wonderful person for you to have an opportunity to talk to in that he pursued uh, a conviction against his nanny who abused him for 10 years. He became an incredibly vocal advocate for sexual abuse survivors. He's also Chabad Shliach in Utah. And there's no evidence. There's no way for him to produce proof that this happened to him when he was a child for 10 years. But it created an eventually it led to a conviction and then a failed appeal as well. And she's in jail, most likely for the rest of her life because she's an older woman. And those cases give me hope that there is an opportunity to pull bad guys and bad bad women off the streets. It takes a lot of fortitude and courage for someone to be willing to disclose who their abuser is and to come forward and make their story public. I think that, you know, part of our our job as a community is to create those safe spaces that if somebody is willing and wants to tell their story, we can handle it and we can say, please talk more versus, you know, I don't sure if you should talk about that in public. I don't think anybody should know about that. And maybe you don't. But really, I think a lot of that comes from the survivor themselves. Like when I interviewed a woman, she said to me, I just don't want to be defined by being an abuse survivor. It's why she chose not to tell her story. She said, I didn't want to be that person. I'm so much more than what happened to me. I am this wonderful administrator and teacher and, and mother and, and wife. And I don't want to be defined by that story. And if I go public, I will become, oh, that's the woman that was abused by her father's best friend. And so it's a complex space for victims and survivors to come forward and to disclose, as well as to name their abuser publicly. Going public into a court of law also means that they have to potentially testify, face potentially, maybe face their abuser. You know, many of these people just say, I just want to be, I want to move on with my life. I don't want to be held in that space with this, with this person always around my neck, right? Emotionally. I think that, that 
if all we can do is start with prevention, but prevention also includes education around being mandated reporters. And yeah, there are going to be people that aren't going to agree with me. And however, there's enough, there's enough halachic who are stating that you may, that you must report to prevent these perpetrators from harming other children. And we go, I go with that. I know that there are others with different voices, but I also know that right now we don't have much power. We used to have much power in our communities. You know, historically, I think we had much more power to control people who were out of control within the Orthodox world. Our world has gotten way too big for that. I don't think we had that level of control anymore internally. It's like fix it internally within the community, if that makes sense. I know you've interviewed many survivors. Have you ever interviewed or learned more about the perpetrators? Is it a mental illness? Is it addiction? Why are they doing this? And what's wrong with them? You know, somebody actually emailed me last night and asked me the same question. Like, why do people do this? Right. And there's so many layers in answering that question. And the biggest answer is, I can't tell you that there's one reason. Could it be their own history of abuse? Most likely, we know that people who are abusers do tend to have a history of child abuse themselves, that they were molested. I want to clarify, that does not mean that everybody who is molested becomes a molester. That's not the way the data goes. It actually does not show that. But that those who are offenders do tend to have their own sexual abuse history as well. Could it be an issue of curiosity in younger years? Could it be an issue of it feels good or it feels powerful or I feel like I, it's the one space that I have control? Could it be an issue of severe negative attachment in their childhood? Could it be trauma of another form? So could it be addiction, as you said? Could it be obsessiveness? Sure, all of the above. But there isn't one thing, there isn't one answer. I guess I'm leading more into when you're dating someone, how do you screen them for being an abuser? I don't know that you can. I don't know that. I really don't know that you can. I think people can hide their stories very, very well. You know, I think Google's pretty powerful. It's amazing what you can find when you're looking into a shit up into a family. You're like, oh my God, like do page three, the father was convicted of fraud, you know? But I, I think that ultimately I think if we raise healthy children into adulthood, then my prayer is that those become healthy dating partners and healthy enough to start going, wait a minute, this person, there's something about this person's past or history or relationship with their family, or there's some really bad dysfunction here that doesn't, doesn't feel safe or comfortable to me. I don't know that you can highlight it off the bat, you know, just from dating somebody five to seven times and then getting engaged. I think we have challenges with that, Right. But what I can do is if somebody discloses their history of sexual abuse in, in the, in the shut up world or upon marriage or whatever, it's not hopeless. And it's not something where you say, oh my gosh, I got to get out of this marriage. It's, oh, I'm so thankful that you told me we're going to get you help. We're going to, you're going to finally be like, uh, I heard a, a presentation from Dr. Kiva Perlman. And he said, for many of these survivors, it's the first place they finally felt safe, safe enough to disclose. And so your partner might be the first person that you've told what you've been through in a child, as a child. And so, you know, really trusting that, trusting that if that person's willing to go get help and willing to address their trauma, there's hope out there. There's always hope when people engage in care, there is always hope. I think this is so important to bring out. I know you brought it up last night as well. The perps, they prey on the vulnerable 
And the vulnerable, even though classically speaking, they're probably children of single parent homes. There was a whole list of at-risk children. But then you said, which I'd love for you to go through, but anyone who doesn't fit those categories can still be at risk during any you know number of transitions. Everybody can become a vulnerable child at some point in their life, at some point in their childhood, if the circumstances line up, right? So what are the circumstances? I mean, it could be something like a move. It could be a parent who's um, absorbed with another child who's having mental health struggles or physical health struggles or a child that's diagnosed with cancer and so the other siblings in the home are being cared for by, you know, the neighbors or the neighborhood or the community or parents that are going through a divorce or, you know, there's a, a grieving parent for the loss of a child. There's so many things that create a struggle within a family system and it's nobody's fault. But I would say to you that the most vulnerable children are the ones that nobody talked to about what's appropriate touch and inappropriate touch. The greatest vulnerability is that a child does not know that it's wrong and that it's not okay and that they need to talk to an adult if this happens to them and that they're not in trouble and that it's not a SNES issue and that those are the most vulnerable are the most innocent. So we talk about like, oh, but I don't want to ruin my child's innocence. You will, those children are the most vulnerable children to those that are perpetrators because they will be sought out and identified very, very quickly by the person who is the potential offender. So we have two last questions. One is if somebody wants to implement or incorporate this program into their school, what can they do? I would say first and foremost, because I'm a big fan of the Maganula Dim International, reach out to Debbie Fox. It's her program. It's online, Maganula Dim International. If it is a school that's local to the Philadelphia area, you're welcome to reach out to me. I can try to guide you and direct you, whether it's in our kind of direct purview or direct um, jurisdiction, but we, it kind of goes by jurisdiction. But you know, if you know that that program already exists in your city and you just want to bring it to your school, you are way ahead of those that don't have any access to it in that community because it's going to be much less expensive. And then again, identifying what would best be the fit for my community and seeking information from the different programs that are out there and finding out which program is the best fit for my community culturally and religiously. And and then you have to get the buy-in of the community, right? You got to get the buy-in of the community and the leadership of the community that could potentially either be your best advocate or the ones who put a kibosh on the whole thing. So you've got to go a little bit delicately through those steps and stages. And if there's one message you can share with anyone and everyone listening to this today, what would it be? Keep talking. The more we talk, the more we reduce shame, the more we reduce stigma, the more possibility of people getting help. Keep talking about it because we have to be, feel, we should feel comfortable enough to talk in number one, with our children in a developmentally appropriate fashion and among adults in a mature and responsible fashion. And the more we are willing to address difficult hard, complicated topics, the greater likelihood it is that there will be a possibility of number one, prevention, and number two, of people actually feeling comfortable, safe enough to get the help that they deserve. My only thing that's still in my head is we know we have to tell our kids we're not the only adults in their life that they can talk to. There are other adults, but then we can't trust any other adults. We have to create boundaries around that. How can we ever trust anyone who is in the child care industry, child therapists, pediatricians, and teachers, and social workers. So again, I want you to start with the, from the premise that most people are good, kind, safe people to be with my my children. And I'm also a smart enough parent that I will also be paying attention. 
That's how we do it. We have to live life with faith among the people that we are, that are in our employ or are people who are in our, that we use for services, you know? Yeah, exactly. And yes, I do trust my family, but I'm also going to be looking for signs where a child might say, I'm not comfortable hanging out with, you know, cousin, whatever. And I don't like, we just recently had a circumstance where a girl expressed something and she shared that she was, oh yeah, I also had this inappropriate thing that happened to me. But then my parents said that her uncle never has to, is only allowed to shake her hands. And the adults were like, oh my gosh, what happened? And I said, hold on one second, find out if the girl just didn't like being tickled by her uncle. And sure enough, that's exactly what happened. But the girl had the language to go to her mom and her dad. She goes, I don't like when he tickles me. And the parents stepped right in and said, you know what, uncle? We love you. We love that you come play your house, but she is too old to be tickled. And she asked, she said no, and no is a full sentence. And how awesome that a child felt comfortable and safe and connected and communicative enough. It didn't become a big deal. It was, please don't tickle our child because my child said no tickling, right? So it not everything is the big, scary thing that's happening in the room. Sometimes it's as simple as the empowering a child to say, mm, I don't like that, stop. And really, and then listening to that child say stop and encouraging the child that stop means stop or no means no. Or I don't want to give a kiss to Bubby when she comes into the door and be forced to give that kiss or, you know, to the scratchy uncle's beard, right? I think that that, that is a very powerful lesson to our children that, you can, you can give Bubby a high five. You can say, hi, you know, I love you. But ultimately giving our children some of that body autonomy is part of the prevention that even when they go with their family and their loved ones and everybody they hang out with and the family that they love sleeping over at their house with, you know, that we should feel confident that in the event that something comes up that our child will come and tell us. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Thank you so much for listening until the end. I really hope you enjoyed this episode. I hope you actually take actionable steps to make improvements in your community. If you'd like to follow me on Instagram for behind the scenes or to reach out to me directly, feel free to do that and check in next time for the next episode. I'm Francisca, your podcast launch coach and expert. See you next time.